Welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a WCCM podcast. I'm Elba Rodriguez. In this episode, we'll hear Kabir Helminski explore the fundamentals of Sufism and how they might be applied in today's world. This is the first part of the talk on the spiritual psychology of Sufism at the Meditatio Center in London. We'll begin today with uh, just some consideration of what I'll call a, spir a model of spiritual psychology so that we have a sort of something to work with, some idea of, of what it is you and I may be. Now, we realize this is not doctrine or dogma. It's just an attempt to describe something that we observe and experience. So there's a model of the self in Sufism that has three primary elements. The first element is the self, your I-ness, your, exp your experience of I-ness in the moment. In Sufi language, in Arabic and other languages, Turkish, Persian, it's called nafs, N-A-F-S. It's a singular word. It's related to breath uh, because a nafs is something that breathes. A self is something that breathes. So this is um, on an axis running from the world of time and space. On this axis, at the lower end, here in this world, is self. But the axis runs up to infinity. At the other pole of this axis, which is you, at the farthermost, subtlest point of that pole uh, is pure spirit. And somewhere in between that ultimate point and this experience of self, somewhere, let's call it the, the middle, is what we call the heart. Now, the heart in this case is not just the seed of emotions. It's not our emotionality. It's not our likes and dislikes. Uh, something much uh, more beautiful than that. The heart, uh, experientially, it is like an a inner space that can experience, that is cognitive, that it's a knowing a knowing something. The heart is what knows this universe, this existence, qualitatively. What do we mean by qualitatively? I mean something as simple as friendship, tenderness, forgiveness, uh, the pleasure we have from relationship the sense of beauty that comes from the human realm, the natural realm, ultimately the spiritual realm. So the heart is this array of, of subconscious and superconscious faculties that can relate to this whole existence as a qualitative experience. The head thinks about it, the head analyzes, dissects, 
this human senses experience this world uh, through the information that come through the senses. Uh, we perceive light and we sound and fragrance and many other things through the senses. But the qualitative experience, the beauty of it, the richness of it, the significance of it, uh, is really a function of the heart. And the mind is here to reason, to make certain judgments, to <coughs> measure, to analyze. Uh, and sometimes the heart informs the mind, the thinking mind, uh, and lends its um, qualitative perception to the mind and, and the mind cooperates with the heart. There is a relationship. But if we were to live entirely in the mind, maybe you know people like this who are completely in their heads, for whom everything is, is, is more of a thing than a being. When the heart is shut down, when the heart is numbed, when the heart is hardened, when the heart is diseased, when the heart is contracted, there are all these, shall we say, negative conditions of, that are possible for the heart. When it's not fully alive, uh, then thinking mind, mentality can take over. It's a dangerous state, because in that state, everything is a thing. All of you are, would just be things to me. To be exploited, to be controlled, to be used, to be dismissed. But when the heart is awake, everything, not only people, but take, everything can take on an animate quality. We see this, for instance, in certain uh, tr very traditional indigenous cultures uh, where they, an animist, the animist sensibility is one in which everything is alive. This is, in a way, the natural state of the human being. I'm not suggesting that we would be benefit by returning to that anim merely animistic consciousness. It's a stage of human cultural development. And it's part of us, but it's not the whole of us. So the heart has this capacity to really sense, to walk into a church. And the church is not just bricks and glass. It has a kind of soul. The heart, and loosely speaking, and perceive soul. Spirituality is the awakening and purification of the heart, primarily, because the heart mediates between ultimate spirit and this human self. The human self is an important part of spirituality insofar as it needs some education, it needs some training, it may need some discipline. Sometimes it may need some tender care as well, uh, if it's not to be a problem, if it's not to become, for instance, a tyrant over the heart. Um, so we have this self, our experience of Inus. At the ultimate pole, we haven't spoken yet about spirit, but when in this meditation uh, I suggested bringing your mind into your heart, and in your heart, 
contacting that dimensionless point. Dimensionless. It's nothing. It's everything. It's a point of contact with the infinite. It's within every human being. Our, everything depends on it. Everything flows from it. All intelligence, all love, all consciousness flows from that infinite, dimensionless point of spirit. We call it in Arabic, ruh, rah, in Hebrew. Um, it's the same in Greek. It's pneuma. But we need a receptive heart, a conscious heart, a healthy heart, Receive what spirit has to give and distribute it to the rest of our being, and including the self, but also the body. Now, the self, the nafs, uh, has there's certain things that reside in the nafs, in the self. One of the things, for instance, that spiritual disciplines work with is hunger, the hunger for food. It's part of our, that part of ourselves that is concerned with survival and satisfying its appetite. So the self, the self is a survival mechanism, among other things. It's here to guarantee that we will continue to exist. You know, if we lost track of this, we might just you know, walk off the edge of the roof or something. Um, so, but it is a survival mechanism. But sometimes that survival mechanism takes over and dominates our lives. Worse yet, sometimes that self can, uh, out of its excessive desires, excessive attachments, uh, and incidentally, through its wounds, through its fears, through its insecurities, begins to act in strange, strange and destructive ways. Um, so, some of the things that reside in the self, hunger. In Sufi, in, in spiritual traditions, in all spiritual traditions, disciplining our intake of food is usually part of it especially fasting. When we fast, we begin to get some separation between that part of ourselves that just wants to satisfy itself. I mean, the interesting thing about the nafs, the self, is that for most people, especially in our culture, a culture which is, uh, has lost so much of the spiritual practices and principles that existed in traditional societies, we're basically here entirely as consumers. The self is a consumer, and we're just taking it in. We're, you know, our whole life is a search for what we can own, what we can eat, what we can consume. And there's very little separation. But in the spiritual t traditions that include fasting, uh, you begin to notice, hmm, hunger, interesting thing, hunger. I don't need to respond to it. 
I can transcend my hunger. And then we find that when we do, we find that something else awakens. Some part of ourselves that had been dormant come, becomes a little more alive. That we become a little more transparent to ourselves. We see a little more deeply into what's going on within ourselves because we've stepped back from satisfying our hunger. Another thing that resides in the self is sexual desire which is really not so different. It's not that different than physical hunger. It has a different reference point, but it is still a desire of the self. The self wants to satisfy this. I mean, some people more, some people less, but I'm giving an indication of the elements uh, that reside in this self. And it's been pointed out that more and more as societies become more and more decadent, the preoccupation with a sexual satisfaction becomes more and more prominent. It becomes almost the goal and end of life in our culture. Um, yeah, it's especially for young women. Young women now are trained to become and present themselves as sexual products from an early age, you know, it depends how long. It can go on for quite a while. And the boys, men, men cooperate with that and that. But then all of consciousness, attention is focused into these areas and become part of our general state of sleep and uh, unconscious functioning and behavior. In our tradition, we have no... Uh, Nothing but respect for the sexual function. We're not puritanical at all. But it has to find its place, and especially in relationship to the heart. Remember, the heart is that which experiences life qualitatively. Just to illustrate this a bit more, uh, sexuality as a purely physical thing uh, a function of the body is one thing. Sexuality as a function of the heart is really more about intimacy than uh, satisfying a physical need. So you see that the heart begins to add a different dimension to things. Um, a person who is heartful just lives in a world rich with meaning and significance and beauty. No physical satisfactions can compare with the satisfactions of the heart, the pleasures of the heart. And yet these pleasures are denied to us if the heart is hardened, numbed, shut down. And hearts shut down for lots of reasons from psychological wounds, perhaps in family of origin, through a society that regularly disregards the heart and uh, focuses either on extreme mentation or extreme uh, physical satisfactions. Um, 
so in the Sufi tradition, we have various ways of training the self, training the nas. One of the foremost ways, actually, well, one of the most essential ways, of course, is the awakening of presence. And by presence, we mean something quite specific. Let me describe it, in fact. Let, first, let me describe it, then let me lead us into it. All of us have thinking. We have feelings, emotions, likes and dislikes. And we have physical sensations. So we are a physical being, we're an emotional being, and we're a mental being. Your essential presence, your I-ness, and mine too, often gets absorbed in a thought, in an emotion, or in a physical sensation. And we become that. We become the thought, oh, I'm not good enough. Or we become the experience, uh, it's too hot in here. Or my back hurts. Or, or we get absorbed in an emotion that, oh, I'm kind of a little sad today. Uh, I am sad. I am hurt. I am angry. Okay, so the I-ness gets absorbed into thinking, into feeling, or into sensation or behavior. Three basic modes of human experience. But let's put all three of those down on the floor here, okay? There's thought, there's feeling, there's your physical being and its sense perceptions. Just all on one plane. But right here, as if in the apex of a pyramid, is conscious presence, which can stand above those three things and encompass them all simultaneously. And you can do this right now. First of all, be aware of your breath. Know that you're breathing. This is partly the physical dimension. Also, know that you are embodied. Can you feel some part of your body sense as much of your body as you can. Start at least with your hands and fingers. You know, you have, we have hands and fingers. Not as an idea, can you feel the, nerve, the energy of your nervous system in your hands? And let that fill up, that experience fill up perhaps through your arms. Experience being in your body for a moment. Still aware of your breath? Don't forget that. Breath sensation. Let's just be with the body for a moment. It's not in imagination, not in thought, but as a direct experience. We're more present already. In fact, we're in a state now where we can, in a way, take a snapshot of our emotional state. What is your emotional state? You don't have to think a lot, just relatively peaceful, I hope, relatively content, 
or whatever it is. Notice what is your emotional state. And at the same time now, maybe you can notice, as if you're meditating with eyes wide open, that thoughts may come, and maybe your only thoughts now are listening to my words. Well, that's okay. That's a kind of thought. I'm listening to my words, too. Thought, emotion, or let's call it emotional disposition, emotional state, physical presence. Now let's experiment. Let's imagine that your presence could expand to fill this room. You could inhabit this room. In some sense, it's an imaginative thing, but let your being expand. Actually, electromagnetically, you are covering this room, literally, physically. The vibrations of your heart, we're in each other's heart vibrations. So this is not entirely imaginary. Presence, aware of thought, aware of emotion, aware of physical sensation, aware of being in this space. So something now in you is able to comprehensively be aware of all of these things. This would be a good way to live our lives. Aware of the breath, still breathing, awareness with gratitude. Can we add gratitude to the recipe? Would you like to be grateful to the divine with every breath? Would you like to be grateful that you're embodied, that you exist? Would you like to be the master of your attention so that you could give your attention to what you choose rather than having it taken by what it's strongest in your environment? These are the basics of spiritual training. One day, with enough practice, you can put your attention fully on the divine. But for now, it's quite enough to be aware of yourself as a human being. And through that, to begin the process of a more sensitive heart, a more attentive awareness, a greater possibility for relationship. So this work of presence is, is fundamental. And this can, this goes into every practice of the spiritual life. In fact, it goes into every aspect of human life. Human life without presence is less than human. The Sufis cultivate a kind of etiquette, courtesy. It's quite beautiful. It's one of the trainings in the Sufi lodge is in how you present a cup of tea and how you receive the tea, for instance. In our tradition, you wouldn't take up a cup of tea without kissing it in respect before you drank it. That's a sign of our own presence and gratitude and respect for the physical world that serves us. The same respect would be given to our brothers and sisters, souls on this path with us. 
um, that very refined conduct, courtesy, respect, is really the foremost practice in Sufism. I was once with a group of Western Sufi sheikhs of traditional orders, and we asked ourselves, what was the most valuable practice we had learned from the Sufi tradition? And within minutes, we all agreed that the most valuable practice was the practice of, it's called adab in our language, languages. Adab, it's really, it's not a good English word for it. Uh, courtesy, etiquette, sounds too formal, too precious, but it is precious. It's a refined, respectful sense of relationship and conduct with everything in existence. For instance, in Rumi's tradition, people would, there would be 18 stages of service in the Sufi lodge, and you would receive your training by going through these 18 stages of service, most of which had to do with physical you know, responsibilities, responsibilities of service. There were people who made the coffee. There were people who bought the coffee. There were people who uh, lit the candles and put the candles to rest. And you see, we say, we don't say put out the candles. We say put the candles to rest. There was a dimension of language. We would never say, close the door. That was too harsh, too negative. We'd say, cover the door. Or, if somebody offered you an extra serving of food and you had had enough, you would say, thank you, I'm already enriched with it. Or if you lost something, like you lost your iPhone or your keys, as Sufi Dervish would say, my iPhone has gone to the unseen. So there was this kind of presence and consciousness that was cultivated among people as a foremost practice. But as it is this awareness and presence awakens through the self, through the inflow from spirit through the heart. It's all of this energy of consciousness, this capacity to be here consciously and with an open heart because consciousness is not for us it's not a mental function it's not up here it's here this is not enough these are not enough the heart has to be conscious I played the music that I did for you at the beginning and end of our meditation that you might hear it with your heart you might get a sense a qualitative sense was there some sense that you get some, did some feeling come through that music? And what was the feeling? Would anybody like to say what was felt listening to the music of the name? What is it? Loss. Okay. What else? Longing. I think maybe you meant something like that, didn't you? Longing. You're in the need to express, yes, the beauty of bringing one's inner state out to share, to express beauty. I should try to complain. 
complaint. She used the Persian word. It's the first opening of the Mephnari. Yes. It's, listen to the read and, and how it complains of separation. But it's not entirely a negative complaint. It's not, uh, it's a complaint that's also rooted in this uh, love, you know. You're missing your beloved. Uh, there's beauty in that. Fragility? Or did I hear virginity? No, fragility? <laughs> fragility. Yes. What else? Space. Is that what somebody said? Space. Space, yeah. That's very beautiful, actually. Sometimes if I were to diagram the melody of the neigh, it's like a bird soaring. It's like a bird that soars and then it kind of... So much movement and uh, spaciousness. So it opens up space. Yes. So all these things are contained in it. And all of these are perceptions of the heart. Expressed through the mind. So this is the basic picture. A self a heart, spirit, and a pole that runs through all levels of existence, through all planes of reality, through all levels of consciousness. A lot of the problems in today's world are from a clash of different levels of consciousness. And in every religious tradition, you will find that there are different levels of consciousness operative. Some of them quite low. Some of them, uh, yeah, representing a very low level of cultural development and human development. But contemplatives across traditions relate very easily because they're coming from a level of consciousness, uh, a subtlety of consciousness that's much closer to the unity, or where there is unity, where there is interpenetration. Um, and our work is to adapt the self, to, uh, or integrate the self, or align the self with higher levels of reality, so the very self becomes an expression of those higher levels of reality. Uh, there's a sometimes a careless use of language in, in certain spiritual traditions where they talk about loss of self. They don't really mean loss of self. They really mean loss of egoism, loss of a certain uh, density of self, perhaps. Let me explain how we see this in Sufism because in one map of the journey, we have seven levels of self, seven vibrational levels or levels of subtlety of the self. And this is very important. If we grasp this, I think it's a useful map. You don't need to know where you are on this map. You don't have to think, oh, I wonder where I am. But uh, just grasp it and, and know that this is our potential. The first level of the self, we'll translate it into English as the commanding or compulsive self. It's a self that has no separation from its desires, its compulsions, its drives. 
in that state, your kindness is like uh, imprisoned by addictions, by desires, by conflicts. It's a terrible place to be, actually. Self always means I-ness, your experience of I-ness. And there's, there's, there's always an experience of I-ness, although that ultimately what that experience of I-ness is may be something quite extraordinary and subtle. But here at the lowest level, you know, like you don't even want to wake up in the morning because your life is a living hell and you're just, you know, you're driven and you're, and in that state, your very ego is, tyrannizes your own heart. Um, and you blame yourself or you are complaining about the world, other people, and everything is, everything wrong is out there or it's all with, with blaming yourself. Anyway, it's, it's a bad situation. The second level of the self is the awakening of conscience. Uh, let's call it the self of conscience. It's when you begin to separate from all of that. Uh, you begin to see your addictions, your compulsions. Maybe you can't entirely free yourself of them, but you begin to notice them. You begin to feel some separation. Religion operates generally in the first three levels that I'm going to describe. The third level is the level when a human being reaches basic integration, goodness, where the good prevails over the bad, the positive over the negative. This is the third level of self. This is salvation in religious terms. But it's only the third of seven levels. Uh, religion and its morality and its teachings are basically to help us not to be criminals, not to kill each other, not to hate each other, uh, and become good people, and become an integrated ego. An ego that is not entirely egotistical, but is balanced and relatively healthy. So these are the first three levels of, of the self. So far we haven't entered into the spiritual path, by which we mean the path that all of you who are practicing meditation, contemplation, you've been drawn to an experiential practice to co connect yourself to a spiritual reality. It's the fourth stage, that's the awakening of presence, the awakening of something conscious in ourselves. You can be a good person and never touch the state. You can be a good person and be asleep. Much of the spiritual work, much of the spiritual path is at this fourth level where there begins to be a discipline of awakening, a practice of of presence, a practice of remembrance, which at first is, is just a glimmer in us, and maybe just moments in a day when we're awake, when we're conscious, then we slip back into all, all of our automatic behaviors. So you see through these different levels that the very experience of I-ness the subtlety of the self is beginning to change. Now the self, instead of uh, 
as in the third stage, you think, oh, I am this, I am that, I'm British, I'm American, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a poet, I'm, you know. You're locked into those identities. But at the fourth stage, you know, your identity is kind of out here. You're at the attributes of your identity. Your identifications are not yourself. And something else begins to awaken. Being, pure being, pure presence, which is what you really are. The rest is just the covering. It's the borrowed clothes we wear. But in this fourth stage, we awaken this self-awareness. And, and we awaken something else as well. Extraordinary, because presence, too, is limited. Mindfulness is not the whole story. Mindfulness is not enough. If we could be in a state of sustained and continuous presence, we would begin to notice, and I don't mean present all the time, nobody is, but more and more be at home in this state of presence, we would begin to sense that our, this presence is not entirely mine. That in fact, my presence is sourced. in that other pole of my being, which is the divine. And we begin to feel a relationship between my presence, my self-awareness, and thanks be to God for that, but we begin to sense that my individual presence uh, has some relationship with a greater presence, is sourced in it, and also can be related to it, can even be, in a sense, intimate with it. And this stage we call remembrance. This is very significant because meditation, as it's commonly understood, is like sitting at the shore of the ocean. Worship or remembrance, worship in the true sense, meaning the remembrance of God, the adoration of the divine, is like diving into the ocean, entering the ocean. So these are two stages that are not usually distinguished, but need to be. The difference between presence and remembrance is the difference between myself as a self-aware being and as opposed to remembrance which is uh, attention on the divine being without losing awareness of my own being. The Sufis practice remembrance through chanting the names of God. That's the most easy, fundamental, simple way of doing it. But they also understand that remembrance ought to be our natural state, where in every moment we're grateful 
for our consciousness. We're grateful for the breath of life. We're grateful for the relationships we have. We're grateful for our faculties which have been lent to us. The Quran says Allah is the seeing, the hearing, the knowing, the speaking, the perceiving, the willing. These are attributes of God, but they are lent to you. You carry those attributes. Your sight is his sight. Your hearing is God's hearing. Your consciousness is God's consciousness. It's sourced there. And knowing this and living as if it's so means living uh, in divine remembrance. Um, I'm going to read you some of Rumi's words on remembrance. Find them. Rumi says, Never be without the remembrance of God. For his remembrance provides the bird of the spirit with strength, feathers, and wings. If your goal becomes actualized completely, that is light upon light. But in any case, through the remembrance of God, your inward will be illuminated and you will achieve a degree of detachment from the world. For instance, look at the bird that wants to fly to heaven. Although it cannot reach heaven, moment by moment it soars farther from earth and higher than other birds. Or consider a small box of musk, musk the fragrance, whose opening is narrow. You put your hand into it, but you cannot bring out the musk yet your hand becomes perfumed and your senses refreshed. So too is the remembrance of God. Even if you do not reach his essence, yet his remembrance has numerous effects upon you. You actualize tremendous benefits by remembering him. So in Sufism, this is the foremost practice. This is the essence of everything. It is to remember God. To be aware of our dependence on God at the same time that we are aware of our responsibility as human beings with conscious will. To be grateful for all the faculties that have been given to a human being. First, you teach a child, you give a gift to a child, and the child's very excited with the gift. But then you, maybe the child learns to be grateful to the one who's given the gift. You're all children of God. Some people are not even grateful for the gifts, first of all. Most of us, in fact, are presumptuous 
about the things that are most essential in our lives, we don't give thanks. So just giving thanks that you can walk, that you can see, that you can hear, that you can breathe, is the first step. But that leads to gratefulness, that there is a giver, that there is a source. <coughs> Grateful to know and experience that we are. In religious terms, gratefulness to God. But there's a stage beyond this. Rumi says, gratitude is greater than the gift. But even greater than gratitude is gratitude to the creator of gratefulness. The one who has instilled in your heart the capacity for gratefulness. So you give thanks for thankfulness itself. This is a subtleization of our perception of divine reality. More and more, everything is seen in the light of God's presence. If you don't like the word God, we don't need it. But it's something transcendent. I believe we're talking about something experiential. That this does not require a theology. It does not require a leap of faith. It requires perception and, an and a quality of attention that is free enough from the ego, from the false self, to actually experience gratitude that I exist and gratitude that I can be grateful that I exist. And gratitude that I can in a moment maybe, maybe love a little bit. Or gratitude that I find in this life certain things beautiful. More and more. In our tradition it's said, when you stop complaining you'll find yourself in paradise. Shall I stop for a moment for questions? Are there any questions, or contributions, observations? You know, we have great respect for words and human language. We know the words are not the object of our worship. They're just pointing. So this is just to bring in a larger context. The language of Sufism is derived from the Quran, from a vocabulary that is uh, profoundly useful and revelatory about this reality. And while the Quran can be understood on many levels and it can be misused, it can be abused, it has been the reference point for all Sufi mystics. I didn't feel the need to say that, but this gentleman's absolutely right. Uh, the revelation of the Quran. But with, a few days ago, I was with a man, internationally known, a major world figure, and he said to me, 
If it weren't for the Quran, I wouldn't be a Muslim. When I look at the Muslim world today, you know, there's tragedy, there's uh, destruction, there's negativity, there's toxicity, a lot of things. But the revelation of the Quran for Sufis has been the guide. It has been created a coherence, uh, a coherent view of reality in which the divine is at the very center. And it is a profoundly coherent vision of reality and has a profound sense of what the human being is. And for me, this is its beauty, that it gives to the human being uh, a dignity. To quote the Quran, it says, we have honored the children of Adam. We have created, and God speaking in the divine we, uh, you, human beings have beautif been beautifully proportioned. And it's the same notion uh, that you were made in the image of God. And that the most important thing, the, really the only thing, the few things are asked of us, a few essential things that we remember, uh, this divine reality. And that we do a certain amount to care for other human beings. That we do no harm. This is the essence of the religion. This is the essence of the path. So, so this is true. Every, and Rumi was very much as he said. When we said, I'm the servant of the Quran, I'm dust under the feet of Muhammad, the chosen one. But also, at the same time, it's important to say, especially to Christians, that the Quran, Islam, claims no monopoly on truth and acknowledges the authentic message of Jesus and other prophets. And it says, to to, it has a very integrative perspective. Um, and basically it says to Christians, if you follow, if you believe in God and do the good, you'll have nothing to fear from God, nor will you grieve. So that's our perspective. It is a very broad, unifying perspective. And the nonsense about unbelievers and all this other stuff is just a misperception. The word for unbeliever in the Quran does not mean somebody of a different religion. It means somebody who's in denial. Somebody who's obscured themselves and stubbornly turned their back on reality. That's what kafir means. It doesn't mean somebody who has not embraced a particular religion. But I feel like I don't, here I don't need to go into all that cleanup work, okay? Focus on, I'm trying to give you the beautiful, the beauty of it and the practicalities of it. Because those are universal. Let's go back to the stages, because remember we were at the fourth stage, which is the stage where most of our work is, really. Um, though there's no telling, no saying how long that work has to be. It could be instant, or it could be a lifetime. The fourth stage, which is a stage of awakening presence and remembrance, of awakening and attention that is under our command, where our, our will, in a sense, can direct our attention and we can pay attention to what we choose and not be obsessed with what is negative. All that work together leads us closer and closer to the experience of intimacy with God. 
if you like, communion, a kind of union with the divine in which it almost seems as if our very self has disappeared and no longer exists. I say seem because it's a temporary experience. The fifth stage is the stage of unity with the divine. And it is an experience that we are, the complete experience of being sourced in the divine at one with the divine. This is like nirvana in Buddhist terms. Uh, it's a kind of enlightenment. It's not yet complete uh, because we don't stay in that unity. We, there has to be a return and the beginning of the return is the sixth stage when we will consciously, intentionally return to our human condition with that awareness of, ha of our unity with the divine. It sounds exalted and beautiful, but actually it's, um, it's a state that also involves coming back to a world at war. At war in this sense, literally and figuratively. Uh, a world of, with all the suffering that we see, at the same time, with awareness that God's grace and mercy imbues everything. And there's no human experience, there's no human condition that is separate from the possibility of being comforted by God's mercy. But the truth is, this is almost a crucifixion. Stage six is symbolized by Jesus' crucifixion. It's... Um, being able to bear the suffering of the world with conscious remembrance of that, of our unity with God. So that, that experience, that, that uh, impression of our, in, of our intimate connection to the divine is always living in us. And in the deepest suffering, as well as in the greatest joy, we don't lose that connection. It's to be able to remember God, be aware of the divine in expansion and contraction, in all kinds of states. Spiritual states are not only states of expansion. Sometimes the moments of contraction offer a profound blessing and connection to the divine reality and to divine mercy. So the sixth stage is a, a, a more mature state than the fifth stage of being at one with God. Because now you're at one with God, but you're in the thick of things. I think in Buddhism, this is like the Bodhisattva stage. The seventh stage is a stage of the final, though there's no final, there's no end, let's say. It is the stage of the more complete purification of the self, transparency of the self where there is an experience of I-ness you know you're not dissolved in the cosmic there is a sense of I-ness but your sense of I-ness is not separate from the eyes of others you look into 
you see yourself, you see another yourself in the other's eyes. You begin to see the life behind life. You begin to perceive the unity of existence. And yet you have a self. Maybe, and very likely, a humble, ordinary self. Somebody who achieves this state is not necessarily going to be sitting on a throne wearing golden robes to express their enlightenment. (laughs) Why would they? So that final stage, nothing is final, but it's still a hypothetical, it's an end point, where you reach total ordinariness, total freedom from the self, and yet you are self. You are a humble, practical human being who can benefit others, who can serve others. Without any, but without any self-assertion, without any claim. And also, in complete submission. There is no, nothing in you objecting to what God gives you and presents you with. There is no complaint. There is no resentment. There is no resistance. There is no second thoughts. It's a self in unity with the divine, but a self nevertheless. The Sutras say at this stage, referring to God as he, temporarily, let's call him he, she, whatever. Say she, he, she, it. He wants what you want. For the human being at this stage, your desire is God's desire. Or God's desire is your desire. But here you are, on the street, in the home, at work, in service. So those are the seven stages. And each stage represents a greater subtlety, a refinement of the self. Uh, and a different experience of I-ness. But there's always I-ness. And there can always be the uh, capacities of reason to draw on. Reason has its place. Intellect has its place. The heart is immense. The capacities of the heart are infinite. What the heart can know. There's a, a saying in Islamic tradition uh, attributed to God. Um, God says, the heavens and the earth cannot contain me. We know the heavens are pretty big, you know. So many universes and how many galaxies and millions of galaxies and the Milky Way itself is phenomenally huge. The heavens and the earth cannot contain me, God says. Only the heart of my faithful servant can contain me. If you won't look for me, look for me there. So the The heart is immense, and Rumi refers to it in so many ways, it's really touching. He says, okay, you know, some poor guy dies and he goes to God and he's dragging a hundred sacks of gold and he comes to God and he's got all the gold he's accumulated in his life. And God says, what's this? Just bring me your heart. If your heart is satisfied with you, 
I am satisfied with you. And the significant thing is that when it says neither my earth nor my heaven contain me, but the heart of a believing human being contain me. It doesn't say the heart of a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim. The heart of a believing human being. Of a faithful servant, yes. A person of faith. Now, the way this expresses itself in a poem of Rumi, and here's a poem that's something new, never been published or translated into English until this week. But it's springtime. Rumi loves spring. Let me also say that it's the heart that can say yes. And it's the intellect that says no, or but. Heart says yes. That's also part of its beauty, which I hadn't mentioned. So, <clears throat> there are things that poetry can express that, you know, metaphysical, metaphysics doesn't do quite as well. So poetry is the language of the soul at its best. And it was Rumi's primary language. Um, and I also want to mention that the foremost uh, revelation of the Holy Quran uh, is the revelation that we live in a beneficent, generous universe. That the divine mercy is the foremost fact of existence. We don't fully grasp it. But the, the, the reason why human beings need revelation and need prophets, and I believe this is the central message of Jesus, and of every prophet, though some prophets uh, revealed more of the mercy because of the times they came in, Jesus certainly reveals the mercy. Um, this is the foremost quality. Even though we have qualities of wrath and stringency in reality, I mean, just look at this world. Um, there is stringency, and sometimes that stringency is there as a feedback mechanism. If you live a life of cruelty, you will suffer. It's, there's not pleasure in evil, corruption, and cruelty. So there are feedback mechanisms. Um, but this is, above all, uh, a universe in which the divine attributes of mercy and beauty prevail over the attributes of power and stringency that even the power and stringency and so-called wrath is also in service to the mercy, uh, bringing us back to the mercy, reorienting us sometimes when necessary, and sometimes taking us directly to God the way only pain can. I'm not saying God causes us pain. That's a subtle matter. But there is mercy in the inevitable pain of existence. But now back to spring. Will this door open at last? Yes. Will the golden face beloved be unveiled? Yes. Our cupbearer remem remembers us drunks one more time bringing the wine and goblet. Yes. The new spring of beauty comes to the garden where the wet branches bloom. Yes. And when the forest weaves its green domes, the rose 
and the water lily pair up. Yes. Earth's dirty and untidy skirt fills up with musk and amber. Yes. That golden face rests upon this silver breast, intermingling silver and gold. Yes. This intoxicated mind, worshiper of thoughts, becomes drunk with that ruby wine. Yes. And these two moist and lamenting eyes find light from this scene. Yes. And the chains that bound us have turned to gold by the hand of that goldsmith. Yes. And when the witness of the soul testifies, this pagan heart confesses faith. Yes. When the splendid horse of love descended from heaven, the Jesus of the heart was freed of this donkey. Yes. And all the creatures of the world are in one being, better than a hundred worlds. Yes. And as I quiet down my heart, a neigh of sugar cane grows forever. Yes. You can hear more talks and conversations in the media section on our website, wccm.org, or in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. For WCCM, I am Elba Rodriguez.